we're, we're talking about how to deal with how you feel, and today we're going to talk about how to deal with how you feel when the Grinch steals Christmas. And sometimes there are people that seem like they don't like Christmas very much. It's interesting to me that Dr. Seuss wrote this book. I don't know when it was written. Do you all know? Anybody have an idea? Let's see. Do they have a publication page in a kid's book? Let's see. 1957. It's awesome. All right. In 1957, Mr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss, writes a book that's kind of prophetic. And so let's start with the book, and we'll kind of end with the book in a little bit. And in between, we're going to look at the original Grinch of Christmas, okay? Every Who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. But for whatever reason, his heart or his shoes, he stood there on Christmas Eve hating the Who's, staring down from his cave with a sour, grinchy frown at the warm, lighted windows below in their town. For he knew every Who down in Whoville beneath was busy now hanging a mistletoe wreath. And they're hanging their stockings, he snarled with a sneer. Tomorrow is Christmas, it's practically here. Then he growled with his grinched fingers nervously drumming, I must find some way to stop Christmas from coming. And today there are people who want to stop Christmas from coming. Uh, we're told and we've been instructed by cer- certain folks in certain places that uh, we can't say Merry Christmas anymore. We have to replace that with Happy Holidays or Seasons Greetings. And, you know, there's nothing new. If you think about it, I, in history there have been books written about this. And even think about um, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. He <laughs> didn't like Christmas. And, and the ACLU doesn't like Christmas. And, and so it's nothing new, but there was an original Christmas Grinch. We're going to look at him in just a second. Taking Christ out of Christmas, it happens a little bit. There's a humorist by the name of Dave Barry. He talks about his kid is in, uh, is in elementary school, and this is what he writes, to avoid offending anybody, my son's school dropped religion altogether and started singing about the weather. They now hold the winter program in February and sing increasingly non-memorable songs like Winter Wonderland, Frosty the Snowman, and yes, there's a song called Susie Snowflake. All of which is pretty funny because we live in Miami, he writes. A visitor from another planet would assume the children belong to the Church of Meteorology. And so today we're going to ask and answer hopefully a couple of questions. Number one, why do Grinches hate Christmas? Because there are some folks that just don't want to have anything to do with it. And what do we do about it? As followers of Christ, we sort of like Christmas a lot. I read an interesting story of a pastor by the name of James Martin. He had gone to Israel on a... Uh, on a trip, you know, he's kind of one of those sightseeing tours. And while he was out, he uh, was in Bethlehem and he found a store that sold nativity scenes that are hand-carved out of olive wood, which is, really sounds cool if you think about it. And so he bought this nativity scene for his home and it had all the you know typical characters, baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph, and then, uh, you know, the wise men and it had uh, oxen and sheep and some of those kind of things, and of course the nativity, the, the manger part. It was in a box, and so when he was ready to fly home, he was flying out of Tel Aviv, and, and the folks at Tel Aviv airport were very, very strict. And he just sort of assumed that his package would pass through um, the conveyor belt and it wouldn't be observed very much, but they took out every piece and they scanned every piece and they looked intently at every piece of this particular nativity scene, and he asked them, why, why are you guys, it's the equivalent of TSA over in Tel Aviv. Why are you doing this? 
And they said, we have to make sure there's nothing explosive in this package. And what's true about Christmas is, and the nativity, there is something explosive about Jesus coming to earth. And so there was a guy who didn't like it very much, and his name was Herod. Now, Herod was called King Herod, though he really wasn't the son of a king. He didn't, uh, he didn't inherit uh, being the king. And he wasn't even Jewish, but he's the king of Israel. It's interesting. But King Herod was also called the Great. Now, um, he was king because Rome had invaded the, the Israelite community, the Israelite area. And so Rome occupied Israel, and they put in place this guy named Herod. And Herod had the, the, the title, The Great. And Herod did some great things. He really did. Um, there's a temple in uh, Jerusalem, and Herod uh, expanded the temple. He renovated the temple. He made sure that happened. So Herod, not a Jew, is the king over the Jews, and he does something good for the Jewish people. It's good. He um, kind of kept Palestine from exploding. Palestine even today. So now, for 2,000 years, Palestine has sort of been a train wreck. And somehow, uh, Herod was able to negotiate peace and to keep the peace, and he made sure everybody was kind of getting along, which is really an accomplishment. He would win a Nobel Peace Prize today for something like that. He also built fortifications so that his area would be safe from invaders. And so he did really some good things. There was one time there was a famine in the land, and it was devastating, and Herod used his own resources, his own money, his own wealth to buy food for the people of Israel in his region. So he did some good things, but if you look at the story of Jesus, and it's kind of found in two places in Scripture. Uh, every Christmas at our family, we read the Christmas story, sometimes from Matthew and sometimes from Luke. Well, today we're going to look at Luke. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be, I'm sorry, we're going to be in Matthew. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And we find the story of Herod sort of intermingled with the story of the wise men. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, there he is, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would the king of this region be disturbed at the birth of a baby? Well, all right, so... This leads us to, why do Grinches hate Christmas? One is we have heart problems. Jesus reveals heart issues when we have them. It didn't require an angiogram or an echocardiogram to see that Herod had issues. He was um, not the nicest guy on the planet. Here is a, a sketch of him. It uh, looks nice enough. But Herod really liked being king. He liked it a lot. And when he was threatened, he didn't like that a lot. And Herod had kind of carte blanche power. He could do what he wanted to do. And so one time, I'll give you some examples. He had a 16-year-old brother-in-law who sort of started to try to make a name for himself and try to kind of position himself for, uh, to take over when Herod uh, became not king. And Herod didn't like it very much, and so he playfully held this boy's head underwater until he drowned. This is the kind of guy he was. He had a wife he loved very much. He loved her dearly. Her name was Mary Omni. He loved her a lot. 
except for when he found out that she was hoping that one of her sons would take over power when King Herod uh, finally resigned or died. And so he had her executed as well. Two wives, at least two wives he had executed because that's the kind of guy he was. He had two sons, his own flesh and blood. Their names were Aristobulus and Antipater. And these guys, they wanted to take over when King Herod died. They never had the opportunity because he killed his own sons. This was the kind of person King Herod was. In fact, Caesar was able to say something about him that others wasn't because Caesar was in charge above Herod. Caesar said it, would, it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. It was safer, he said. He lived with a level of paranoia that caused him... It was actually maddening how paranoid he was. Now... There were people that were trying to take him out. You remember when you were um, uh, a kid and you played King of the Hill? I mean, that was always fun. But there's, when you play King of the Hill, you're constantly on guard because somebody is trying to take your place. And they're trying to take your place from all around if you have the right kind of hill. And so I remember as a fifth, fifth grader, Tolliver Elementary School in Danville, Kentucky, I remember it like it was yesterday, we played King of the Hill and you always had to be on your guard. And this was the kind of guy Herod was. He was King of the Hill and he liked being king. He liked it a lot. In fact, it's interesting, this is kind of comical, honestly, when it says... When Herod heard about this baby being born, this was disturbing to him. He was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Um, they had a saying back in the day, you may have heard it, uh, when Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Have you all heard that before? Uh, that comes from this time. And when it says Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him, well, it was because Herod had that kind of temper. And if Herod was disturbed, you better be disturbed because somebody's head was going to roll. You see, just like the Grinch, Herod's heart wasn't big enough to have somebody else in charge. We have people like that today. Um, the American Humanist Association has billboards and buses and they put signs on it that say, well, I believe in God, just be good for goodness sake. There is this sort of subtle or maybe not so subtle anymore movement toward, hey, we really don't need Christ anymore in our lives. We're smarter than that. We, uh, we don't need a Savior. The guy that is the spokesperson for this organization said, we are trying to plant a seed of rational thought and critical thinking and questioning in people's minds. In other words, we're smarter than you. We don't really need God. It reminds me of what Paul said. Paul dealt with people like this. I know very well how foolish the message of the cross sounds to those who are on the road to destruction. But we are being saved. We who are being saved recognize this message as the very power of God. And as the scripture says, I will destroy human wisdom and I will discard their most brilliant ideas. There are people who aren't very happy and Christmas makes us happy. And so that doesn't make them happy. And so they're not going to be happy. They're not going to let us be happy. It's kind of one of those things where um, misery loves company. And so uh, most of us are live and let live. We just kind of want to just do our own thing. We want to celebrate Christ at Christmas. But there is sort of this idea out there that... We shouldn't be able to. I don't know how you take Christ out of Christmas because Christ is why we have Christmas, but there is a movement toward that end. Let me go back to Herod just one more second. Herod got older uh, later on in his life. He knew he was about to pass away. And he also knew that most people didn't like him very much. And so he made 
a plan. And his plan was this. He arrested, they arrested several of the Jewish hierarchy, the higher leaders, and he had them put in prison. And they were instructed that when Herod died, he said, when I die, I want you to execute these guys. People might not mourn because I'm gone, but they'll mourn that I'm gone. That was the kind of guy he was. That was his instruction. It wasn't followed, by the way, but he had a real heart problem. He had a, a problem with pride, and some of us do as well. You know, the Bible tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And there are times in our lives where we just have to swallow our pride and just say, you know what, I, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. I read a cute little story. Uh, there's a lady by the name of Jamie Kelly. She and her neighbor were kind of doing that battle between uh, who has the best Christmas lights. I don't know if any of you all are crazy like that, but uh, she was kind of battling with her neighbor. And her, her neighbor would put up some lights, and she would put up some lights, and then they would put up more, and she would put up more. And she eventually just kind of got tired of it. And so her strategy was this, and I think it's brilliant. She let her neighbors decorate, and then she, she's over there on the left. She just put ditto. I, I just think that's brilliant. It's just brilliant, right? And sometimes we just have to sort of admit, okay, um, the heart problem is one of control. I want to be in control. And to acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is, well, then we have to give up control. And most of us don't like it. Men especially. Men, quick quiz. How many of you, you can't even answer this. Uh, I was going to say, how many of you let somebody else use the remote in your house? And if you answer it, we're all going to know you're a big jerk, a big baby. So you can't even answer this. You can't even answer it. At my house, look, I don't even need this to preach. It's just a crutch. It makes me feel like I'm at home. I get to change this. I've got people that could do it for me. I want to do it myself. I like being in control. I heard about a lady. Her husband wouldn't go with her Christmas shopping. And so she goes Christmas shopping, and it's time to check out, and she's got a purse. And, you know, you know some ladies have really, really big purses. And, and she had this big purse, and she was ready to check out, and she couldn't find her checkbook. That's back in the day when they used checkbooks. You remember that? Uh, and she couldn't find her checkbook, and she's taking stuff out of her purse to find her checkbook, which was in the bottom. And she takes out her remote, and she puts it on the counter to find, find her stuff underneath. And the, the guy said, do you carry a remote with you everywhere? And she said, no, but my jerk husband wouldn't get off the couch, and this is the worst thing I, think I could think of to do to him. I just brought it with me. We like being in control. Now, we don't mind giving God some control. We, we, if we're hurting, we'll pray. If I'm sick, I pray for healing. If I need a job, I can pray for that. If I start to, uh, my car starts to spin, I can sing that song. You know, Jesus, take the wheel, take it from my hand. I mean, I can sing that. You know I got the pipes, I can do it. Uh, uh, we, we, we'd like him to be in some control. It's just not complete control. And, and Herod, was, Herod was the guy, he liked being in control. The original Grinch, and every Grinch since, doesn't want to admit that they're not in control. In the book of James, there's this really great text, a couple of verses together, sort of this snippet, this concise little nugget of this is how you live life. And, and James writes this, God opposes the proud, he gives favor to the humble. We just talked about that a second ago. And then he sort of said, this is how you do it. Submit yourself, completely submit not just some of you, but all of you. Submit everything is what, really what he's implying here. Submit yourselves completely then to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Come near to God, he'll come near to you. 
Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. And we read that and we think, man, I, I really don't like to think about myself as a sinner. It doesn't really matter if you like to think about it or not. It's still true. If we sin, we're sinners. I, I don't like that about myself. I, I really don't like it, but it's still true. I sometimes sin. So he says, hey, 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 wash your hands, sinners. Um, he wrote this during a pandemic. Did you know that? Uh, really, he did. Uh, not true. I'm just making it up. Anyway, um, purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's really interesting he uses the word that is translated double-minded. We just saw Herod. He was double-minded, right? I mean, he did good things. He did really good things. I mean, really, really good things. Some of the stuff he did was really, really good. And yet, on the other hand, he could be, be really, really horrible, and I don't know about you, but I sort of have this dual, dualism to me, too. I think most of the time I do good things, but man, I, I catch myself sometimes doing stuff. I, it's called sin. And so he's saying, hey, cleanse yourself of this and, and purify your hearts and grieve about it and mourn and wail and be sorry that you sin and don't rationalize it. Here's what we, we want to rationalize. it. Well, it's not really that bad. Well, really? Because the Bible says it's bad. Well, but God wants me to be happy. Really, does He? Because it says He wants you to be holy. The Scriptures distinctly says, be holy. It says be holy. And so sometimes we don't like to admit our own sin and we don't like to think about it. And we rationalize, hey, well, God doesn't care about this. Well, He does care about it. He talks about it. And so He's saying here, grieve about that. Mourn. Be sorry that you sinned. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He'll lift you up. And Herod was the guy who didn't want to humble himself. Have you ever heard this expression, it's good to be king? It's good to be king. I say it around my house all the time. I need Miriam to know who's El Presidente at our house. Uh, she gets a good laugh out of it every time I do it. Um, it's good to be king. This would have been Herod's motto. It's good to be king. And what he was basically saying is, I like being king and I really don't like not being king. And I wouldn't like not being king. And I'm going to be king and I'm going to make sure I stay king. And he did everything he could to be king. When you're younger, it's easy to submit. I became a Christian at seven years old. It's easy when you're seven years old. You want to know why? Because it's easy to submit. When you're seven, you're always submitting. I submitted to my parents they told me when to eat. They told me when to go to bed. They told me when to go outside. They told me when to come in. They told me when to take a bath. They told me all of these things, and I submitted because I was seven years old. I submitted to my teachers. My teachers, for the most part, when I was seven, I did. I got rebellious when I got older. But when I was seven, my teachers would tell me when to go to recess, when to go to lunch, when to do studies, when to read. They, uh, I was, my, my schedule was dictated for me, and I submitted because I was seven years old. It's easy when you're seven to submit. But when we get older, submission becomes quite a bit more difficult. Because we, we taste the sweet elixir of independence. We, we're sort of used to being in charge. And now we get to a place where we're reading Scripture and it says stuff we don't particularly like. I'm supposed to forgive. I'm supposed to love. I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. I mean, all these things are tough. That's, how, that's hard, uh, hard stuff. I don't like it. And I don't have to submit. 
Now, when I was seven, I prayed a prayer. I gave Jesus as much of my heart as a seven-year-old can give him. But I have to recommit as I get older. I don't have to get rebaptized or rewalk the aisle or redo anything. I just have to. My relationship with Jesus has changed over these 50 years. I'm not the same guy I was when I was seven years old as I am today. And so there, there's this process of continuing to submit to the Lord. I've got to continue this. Can you imagine the scene? This magi come in. These wise men from the east. King Herod thinks himself important. And he is. And he's got lots of power. Got lots of, of, of gravitas. I mean, people come to him. And these, these kings from the east, the foreign, faraway land, they come to the palace and they want to have an audience with King Herod. Dignitaries from other countries. Really, really important people. My wife is Swiss, and so because she's Swiss, sometimes when we lived in Dallas, we had an embassy, a Swiss embassy around Dallas, I think, and we were invited one time because of Miriam. I would never be invited because I don't know anything about these people, but we were invited to the home of someone who was hosting the Swiss ambassador, and it kind of, kind of feel, it was, it felt very formal. And I fit that mold. I'm very formal. I mean, you can tell that, right? Uh, and I was saying, howdy, and you know, stuff. And, and, um, uh, and these were people that drink tea with their pinky out. What a bunch of weirdos. Anyway, uh, uh, that was the kind of, that, this was the kind of meeting we're talking about. These wise men from a far off place, they show up at the palace door and they ask, they request an audience with King Herod. Now, if a dignitary shows up, you as the king, you are, you are more than happy to meet them. And then when they came in, he could probably tell they, they came bearing gifts. Maybe he looked at, again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. They would have come with a huge entourage of people. It wasn't three guys kind of mumbling and bumbling their way across the country. These guys came in a caravan with a lot of, lot of security. They were important. And Herod was important. And, and they had a meeting. And I can imagine Herod was thinking when they saw these guys, he was thinking to himself, they're here to strike a, a peace treaty or they're here to seek my wisdom because he hadn't invited them. They had to be here for a reason. They had a, you know, they're on a mission. He's probably thinking how important he was. And then they ask him, where's the new king? Can you imagine how that went down? I mean, this is King Herod. He is paranoid out of his mind. And they say to him, hey, 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 we hear there's a new king. Where is he? So he dismisses them. And then he does something strategic. This is really, really interesting. Um, When he had uh, dismissed the Magi, he called together all the people's chief priests, the Jewish people, the, the Jewish chief priests and teachers of the law. And he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Huh. He is in a backroom conversation now, right? So, we, we, I don't know a lot about politics. I, I just know sometimes they seem sort of to be making backroom deals. I don't know if that's fair. That's kind of how it seems. So, here's Herod and, and 
The Magi said, oh, uh, where's the new king? And like Herod, I can just see the hair on the back of his neck bristle. And it's like, I don't know, but I'll find out. I'll do this for you, right? And so he sends them off and he calls the chief priests in and he finds out um, where the Christ was to be born. And see, Herod saw Jesus as a threat. So, so look what happens next. Oh, by, by the way, do you, do you see the difference between the Magi and Herod? The Magi are willing to admit, to humble themselves, to travel from a distance, to bring gifts. They're willing to humble themselves to see the new king. The old king isn't willing to do that. Herod was intimidated by Jesus because he thought Jesus was there to take his power. Jesus was on a mission. It just wasn't that mission. In fact, in Galatians it says Jesus' mission was he gave himself for our sins to free us from evil and the evil world we live in as God the Father planned. There was a plan around Jesus and Herod thought he knew what the plan was, but he didn't. And so he, he seeks to know where Jesus is, not to worship Him, but for nefarious reasons. We have heart problems. Jesus exposes those heart problems. We all have them. Pride, control. But Jesus also exposes something else, an evil problem. Then Herod called the Magi secretly back in. Again, back, back door, smoke-filled room kind of meetings. And he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and I'm really glad you all are sitting down because I'm going to read a quote, and you, this is a politician not telling the truth. And that hardly ever happens. Uh, So I'm glad that you are sitting down because this is unbelievable. A politician not telling the truth. Right here. Go. Make a careful search for this child. As soon as you find him, report to me. So I may go and worship him too. Now, now that you know a little bit about (laughs) Herod, you can imagine what sort of worship this would have entailed. And so, God in His providence told the Magi, once the Magi find Jesus, to not go back. Don't go back through Jerusalem. Go another way. And so they went another way. And God in His providence warns Joseph, Hey, Joseph... Bad things are about to happen here in this area. You need to take baby Jesus and Mary and you all flee. And they fled to Egypt. And you'd think, oh, Herod, good nature, old Herod, right? Um, When he finds out the Magi went another direction, you know, he's probably kind of footloose, fancy, and he'd probably be saying, you know, those... Those jokers, you know, that's, those, those magi are just like that. You know, win some, lose some. Not so much. This is what Herod did. When he realized that he had been outwitted by the magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance to the time he had learned from the magi. If he couldn't find the right one, if he wasn't certain about finding the right one, he was just going to make sure they all were gone. This is the depth of evil that you find. And what's really startling about Matthew 2 is you have the birth of Christ in the same chapter with the corruption of Herod. 
And you have salvation from God and slaughter of kids in the same chapter. And, and it is sort of pure, pure good versus pure evil, and you see it. And Jesus' birth exposes evil, but it didn't eliminate evil. We live in a fallen world and bad things still happen. And people will ask me sometimes, why do bad things still happen? Because we live in a fallen world and we're fallen people. In fact, Scripture says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We all make decisions that we don't like. We all do things that are sinful. We just do. We, I don't know how many copies of Scripture you have. I have a few, but now I don't need them as much because uh, with electronics and with uh, you know, online, you can get Bibles any, anytime you want, and many, many translations. But back in the day, when Bibles started being printed, you know, they did that manually. They, they ran literally paper through a literal printing press, and they used little um, letters, and they would have to set the type. And sometimes they set the type wrong, and it was comical, right? And so in 1716, there was a King James Bible that was printed. And Jesus was supposed to say, sin no more. But there was an error, and they printed it, sin on more. It's a great year for Bible sales because this verse, people, a lot of people live this verse. People love this verse. They've got that printed on their they tattoos of this verse. Because we like to sin on more. That sin no more, not so much. Not so much. So the fact is that... Grinches hate Christmas. They always have. Maybe they always will. I don't know if you realize how wonderfully theological this book is. You, truth, all truth is God's truth. It really is. And we find it even in the Grinch. My two favorite Christmas shows or movies are How the Grinch Stole Christmas and Die Hard. Uh, both of them deeply theological. And I'll explain to you why. If you've ever watched Die, if you've never watched Die Hard, you probably shouldn't. And if you do watch it, watch the version uh, where they edit out most of the cuss words. Okay, so apart from the cussing and the killing, all that aside, you have a you have a dude, Bruce Willis, a Christ figure in this story, who is willing to risk everything for his bride. Isn't that what Jesus did? It really, is. I mean, I know it's a stretch, but think about it. How the Grinch Stole Christmas, also deeply theological. Let's look at the end of this, because it's really good. The Grinch steals all of their stuff, right? He puts it all on his sled, he goes up to the mountain, Mount Crumpet, and this is where we find ourselves. 3,000 feet up, up the side of Mount Crumpet, he rode with his load to the tip top to dump it. This is great writing, by the way. Poo-poo to the who's, he was Grinchishly humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. And then the who's down in Whoville will all cry, boo, who, who, who. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put his hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, and then it started to grow. But the sound wasn't sad. Why, this sound sounded merry. It couldn't be so, but it was Mary, very. He stared down at Whoville. The Grinch popped his eyes. Then he shook. What he saw was a shocking surprise. Every Who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. 
And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's heart, his small heart, grew three sizes that day. And the minute his heart didn't feel quite so tight, he whizzed with his load through the bright morning light, and he brought back the toys and the food for the feast. And he himself, the Grinch, carved the roast beast. I love that story because Christmas doesn't come from a store. Man, one of the most fun things about Christmas is giving. And there's beautiful theology in that story. And honestly, the answer to what do we do when Grinches hate Christmas is we just live our lives the way we're supposed to. We respond to darkness with light. We respond to hate with love. This is what we do as Christians. We respond with love and light. I read a beautiful story I want to end with today. There's a lady named Mary Daniels. Her husband, Steve, was in an assisted living home. He has Alzheimer's. They live in Jacksonville, Florida. And she would go every night to, to make sure he got fed and got into bed and that sort of thing. Every night she would go and be with Steve. And then COVID hit and they kind of locked down the facility and they couldn't, she couldn't now get in to see him ever. 114 days in a row she wasn't able to go in to see Steve, and she writes this, We've separated these folks to save them, but the isolation will absolutely kill them, especially dementia patients. They need interaction and touch, or they'll wither away. And her heart was broken, and she was praying, What can uh, I do to get to see my husband, Steve? And then she says, Out of the blue, the care facility where he was, uh, was staying gave her a call. And they said, we have a part-time job here at the facility if you'll be interested. And she knew that what that meant was she would get behind the locked doors. And she could be where Steve is. Even if she couldn't actually be close to him all the time, at least she could be, at least see him and be with him some. And so she took this job. She took the job as a dishwasher. And she said it was worth it to be able to visit him. And I can be with him every day. And I can already tell the difference in his demeanor. I think this is just a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us. He was willing to do anything to be with me and you. He was willing to even become, as God, a man. To take on human flesh. To do anything it takes to be with us. And I want to end with a couple of verses in 2 Corinthians that kind of talks about what Jesus did and then our responsibility because it answers the question, hey, there are Grinches out there, how do we respond? We have to remember, God was in Christ. He was working through Christ to bring the whole world back to Himself. God no longer held men's sins against us. We were sinners. We needed a Savior. Jesus came to be that Savior. It is the foundation of how we live our life. And he gave us the work of telling and showing men this. We are now responsible. And he says, we are Christ's missionaries. God is speaking to, uh, uh, to you through us. We are speaking for Christ. And we ask uh, for your own hearts to turn from sins to come to God. 
We have this responsibility of being light in a dark world. Christ never sinned, but God put our sin on Him. Then we are made right with God because of what Christ has done for us. I don't know about you, but the answer to the question, what do we do, is we just live for Christ. When Grinches want to steal Christmas, we live for Christ. And it's really hard. It's difficult. I mean... As a preacher, I know your expectation of me is that I am nearly perfect, and really, you are so far off, it's not even funny. The other day, I was at Lowe's. This is shocking. I go seven times a day. Uh, I was at Lowe's, and I was trying to pull through, and somebody blocked the drive. Um, I, I almost lost my mind. I was praying a hellfire would fall on the guy's car. I mean, it really is horrible. It's like, Lord, could you take him out? I really, can you? But when you take him out, could you make his car roll back? I mean, that's kind of where my mind was, right? I can't believe he blocked the drive. And then it was like, the Lord, the Lord does he ever chastise you? Because it really happens to me sometimes. And it was like, you know, he's just not thinking. And you don't always think. And... You know, our verse that we just saw, Jesus died for all people, even guys that block the driveway. Even guys that block the driveway. Hard as it is to believe, it's true. The stress of Christmas, the pace of Christmas, this Christmas, the year that we're having, makes it tough. We show... The light of Christ to others by by living in that love and in that light. And we're just, as difficult as it is sometimes to be nice to people and to do the right thing, this is what we're called to do. And sometimes we mess up. And just like that James text we talked about just a second ago, we have to repent and mourn and get over it and go and, and do better the next time. And I was angry with that guy, and I'm going to do better the next time. And the next time I drove into the Lowe's parking lot, there was a guy who had blocked the driveway. Evidently, it was his cousin. And uh, uh, I just I sat there, and I was patient. And it's like, you know, I, that stuff is still going to be there when I get there, and it's okay. And we learn from our mistakes. This is what God wants for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We know all truth is your truth, and... This cute little story that we were able to read part of today just reminds us that Christmas isn't about stuff and it's not about anything other than Jesus. And folks might not like it and they might not want to submit and we might not like it and might not want to submit. But we are called to be a light in a dark world. Help us to be that this year, this season. Every day, we pray it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.